Again, as Sarah said, or uh, Hairball said, uh, <laughs> pumpkin killing is today. Please, if you're not doing anything, come out. You'll really enjoy it. If not, you can hop in your car and drive away. It's not like you're stuck there. Uh, you can, we're going we're gonna to launch pumpkins out of cannons. It's going to be amazing. You will even get the chance to do it yourself. So, yeah. Yeah, okay. All right. We're, we're trying to find ways to make some targets so you can actually aim at something to shoot it with a pumpkin. It's just going to be sweet. Uh, second thing that I have to tell you about before I get started is Halloween is Wednesday. And I, I know there's some Christians out there like, Halloween is the evil holiday. I think Halloween is the best holiday on the calendar, other than Christmas. Uh, I think Halloween is a ama- well, you get presents at Christmas, right? But you get candy on Halloween. Let me tell you if, what I would like you to do on Halloween. Don't run away to some little festival somebody does somewhere. If you have kids... Trick-or-treat in your neighborhoods because you're going to go to different houses in your neighborhood. You're going to ring their doorbell. People are going to open their door, be happy to see you, and give you candy. It's an amazing holiday. You get to know your neighbors in a great way that's, that's totally natural. Ding dong! This is my child, Satan, and uh, my other child, the angel. That's what I'm bringing to your house tonight. And, oh, thank you for candy, right? So, and if you, and if you don't have kids... Uh, you know, I know some people are throwing some parties, but they're hanging out in the front yards of these places and handing out candy and getting... But if you don't have kids and you're not doing anything, turn on your lights. Be inviting. Bring people in and, and give candy out because your neighbors are coming to your house and you get to know your neighbors. We are meant to be a people who join with others and love in our neighborhoods and our communities. So hand out candy and hand out good candy like Jesus would hand out. Don't, don't hand out like Tootsie Rolls. I'm going to break some poor kid's teeth. Hand out, hand out something good. I'm handing out hundred grands and and white chocolate M and M's, full size, like Jesus would do. Because it's important, okay? Be lovers of Jesus. Love your neighbors. Get to know them. This is a great holiday to do that. All right, I get to say that once a year. That's my soapbox. And my third thing before we start is time change. Time changes next Sunday. You get an extra hour of sleep. Jesus loves you, right? When, when you lose an hour, that's the devil. But this one, extra hour of sleep. Praise God, the world's wonderful. I, what I think should happen is every time the time changes, we just keep setting our clocks back. I know at one point you're going to be going to work in the middle of the night, but you get an extra hour of sleep every six months. <laughs> I would gnaw off my arm for an extra hour of sleep sometimes. So anyway, like this morning. Anyway, uh, where was I going? Okay, so hey, welcome to Element if you're new. Come to Pumpkin Killing. Uh, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. Uh, there are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. On the back side, you're going to get some questions that go along with the message as I talk about it. Uh, our gospel communities are also going through a book called The Reason for God. It's by the same name by an author named Tim Keller because we're not that creative. So apparently we just steal the name of the book as we do the series about the book, whatever. Uh, but uh, there's a lot of different stuff that come along in the book as well. But if you're just here for the messages, uh, you can actually get this and go along with that. Ask some people some questions about that. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on More and Then Events, and Uversion will come up by GPS in your smartphone, and you will get the sermon notes, the verses, the questions, and the announcements from Lipstick and uh, Screwball, uh, Hairball, uh, that, that they gave you. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. I want you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. 
Uh, this is John seventeen seventeen, and this is Jesus praying to his Father about us, and he says, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would take us as a people, and you would have us be a people who begin to change because we understand and live in the truth that you have provided, that our hearts and our lives would recognize who you are in every aspect of them. And that as you begin to change us, we would fall more and more in love with who you are because you have first loved us. Amen. Have a seat. All right. So as I said, we are doing this series through Tim Keller's book called The Reason for God. Uh, We do this because we want to grow you to trust more of the scriptures, who God has revealed himself to be, the reliability of them, that Christianity is an historical faith that is true that has been handed down to us. We have covered several topics at this point about how to fully trust who God is in the midst of our skeptical and questioning culture. And today we're actually going to hit the question of the Bible itself. I actually thought about doing this week one because if you go to our gospel class, we talk about the Bible, that's week one. Tim Keller does it in chapter seven of the book, so that's the chapter you're reading uh, this week. Uh, The scriptures are God revealing himself to his people, and yet today so many people think they can't trust the Bible. Talk to a lady after first service. She had a son, he's 18 years old, he was raised in churches, and he says, oh, the Bible was written a million years ago, we just can't trust that anymore. And I'm like, oh, you should have brought him today. Today's a great day for that. Uh, I took a Bible as literature class in college, and the only thing it seemed like the teacher wanted us to learn was that you couldn't trust the reliability of the Bible. Uh, The instructor wanted everyone to believe the Bible was a collection of myths and stories and fables that the church made up and manipulated in order to bring about their own desired power and theology. And so it wasn't that Jesus came to change our view of who God is and read us back, direct us back into relationship with him and then the disciples writing about it. It was that the church changed Jesus to fit with their power structure. Anybody ever read this book or seen a movie called The Da Vinci Code? Anybody? Okay, so about half of you. This will make sense to you. The rest of you, sorry, come back in like three minutes. Okay. Uh, in, in this book, the whole, the whole premise behind this book in the movie is that the early Christians literally stole Jesus. And in the book, they, it says, he shrouded Jesus' human message in an impenetrable cloak of divinity. Then they used that to expand their own power. And so the novel claims that there are these early Christians who were called the Gnostics. And those were actually the real Christians. Now, the Gnostics, they were around and they were a group that was considered a cult. Uh, they believed that the flesh didn't matter and only knowledge, the spirit, mattered. So it didn't really matter what you did with your body. It was all about the knowledge and the things that you knew. And they saw Jesus as far, far more human than the divinized you know, the person that the scriptures talk about in, in the Bible. So the reality is that these Gnostic people actually had scriptures. Uh, they're called the Gnostic Gospels. There's the, there's the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Peter. But all of these were written hundreds of years after the original Gospel accounts. And they're lying about their authorship because people didn't live that long then. They actually lived a lot shorter than you do. And if you're lying about your authorship, I don't know if you should be so much trusted about the things that you're actually saying about God. And so the... No, no one really reads the Gnostic Gospels. They hear people talk about them and they go, oh, there's other Gospels. Oh, the Gnostic Gospels. Well, what are those? Well, if you compare them to the actual Gospel accounts in the Scriptures, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Jesus of the Gnostic Gospels is not even really recognized as a Jewish carpenter from first century Palestine and a teacher. Instead, he's many times described as like a phantom-like creature. And he would lecture at length about these things, the deficiency of the eons, the mother, the arrogant one, and the archons. And you're like, what? 
Well, that's what everybody else did. And then, too, they're like, what? Because it kept the Gnostic elite in power. Oh, we know the things that you don't. We get to have power. Like the Gospel of Thomas even says that sincere women of faith, God will turn into men. Because that's how they viewed women. Women were worthless, and so if you really love God, God will turn you into a man. If you're a dude, you should pray that that never happens, okay? I like my wife just the way that, that she is. And, and it's, it's really interesting because the, these Gnostic Gospels, they are nothing like the real Gospels. The real Gospels are filled with narrative and concrete details and historical figures and political activity and details about social and religious life. And I'm not here to answer the Da Vinci Code for you today. If you watched it or believed it or I did a whole sermon on it, it's on our website, it's free. Again, you always get what you pay for, but, but, it, but it's free. Uh, and if you were ever swayed by something like that, I want you to know that all those questions have been asked asked and answered at least 100 to 150 years ago. The Bible that you have in your hands is one of the most accurate documents in all of ancient or modern literature. Somebody once asked G.K. Chesterton, who was a Christian writer about a century ago, if you were marooned on a desert island and you could have only one book with you, what would it be? You know what his answer was? Not the Bible. He said, Thomas's Guide to Practical Shipbuilding. That's, that's what he wants. If you're stuck in it, he said, oh, it should be the Bible. No! You want, he says, he says, if you find yourself trapped in a desperate situation, you don't want a book that's just gonna entertain you. You want a book that's gonna educate you to find out, how do I get home? How do I get saved? So, if you want to learn about your heart and soul and true and real life relationship with God, what should you read? You should read the writing of the God who revealed himself to us so we could know him. Open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Has the Bible then been proven somehow by science or archaeology to be unreliable? Uh, I think Tim Keller says, does it condone practices that are culturally regressive? Can a modern educated person really take seriously the idea that this text written millennia ago was somehow inspired by God? If, have you personally ever read something in the Bible and been like, oh my goodness, what does that mean? I don't understand it. I'm confused. If not, I wonder if you've ever really read the entire Bible. And when we've been going through this series, there are some good questions that have come up even in my own gospel community. And so what I've actually done is on all the communion tables throughout the room, there's three by five cards. Maybe that's four by six. I can't tell. Anyway, but three by five cards on all the communion tables. And if you have a question that this series kind of prompts in you, or maybe a question about the Bible or the scriptures that, that hasn't really ever been answered, uh, write it down. And there's a basket at the Welcome Center. Throw it in there, and we will eventually come back and answer those, probably in a, in a sermon-type form. But I guess that's my, my catch, right? You've got to come back to hear the answer? I don't know. But if you have one, write it down. That, that's, that's what they're there for because we want to answer, answer those things. And if you do have questions, again, know you're in good company. Second uh, Peter three fourteen through 16, this is what Peter says. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Now, there's two great things in this. First off, Peter says, sometimes when I read Paul, I can get a little confused and it's hard to understand. There you go. You ever read Paul and be like, oh, what does he mean by that? Peter's in the same boat. The second thing he says is that Paul's writings are the same thing as scripture. And he talks about that. So already Peter's recognizing that Paul's words have this power about them, this authority that puts them in a different category than merely human writings. 
And this is what we believe about the words that are contained in the Bible. So today what I want to do is answer five objections that a lot of people have today about the reliability of the scriptures. I want to do this in a very respectful way uh, that hopefully in the end you can trust the reliability of the Bible a little bit more. Uh, I'm going to steal a lot of stuff from like uh, John Frame and Douglas Gruthis and uh, William Lane Craig and some stuff from John Ortberg. I'm going to borrow very liberally from all of these people as we go through this so I can give you something more than just what's in the book. So objection number one, uh, the Bible may have valuable moral insights, but it's really only a collection of myths and fables. Okay, you hear this a lot today. This is what my instructor believed in my Bible as a literature class. Now, first off, I want you to understand that the Bible is not just one book. Like when I, when I talked about Peter saying things about Paul, it's like, well, that's circular reasoning. You can't quote the Bible to prove the Bible. Well, the Bible isn't just one book. The Bible is 66 different books. The word Bible comes from the Greek word for book. The Holy Bible means the Holy Book. And it contains, as I said, 66 books. 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament. It was written in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and a bit in Aramaic. It's written in a period of more than a 1,000 years by 40 different authors of various ages and backgrounds. It was written on three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. Its authors include kings and peasants and philosophers and fishermen and poets and statesmen and scholars. The books in the Bible cover history and sermons and letters. There's a hymn book and a love song. There are geographical surveys and architectural specifications. There are travel diaries and population statistics and family trees and inventories and numerous legal documents. You go through it and you'll see it covers hundreds of controversial subjects with amazing unity. It is also the best-selling book of all time. It is available in over 3,000 languages today. And the one thing that binds all of these texts together is a conviction that there is a God, and he is not silent, and he has revealed himself in human history, particularly in the history of this place called Israel. It tells that we have broken relationship with God, that we have run away from him, and God is coming to rescue and restore us again. And this is what made the scriptures of Israel unlike any other ancient sacred writings, like those of the Sumerians or the Egyptians. God's people took seriously the idea that God revealed himself in history in a way that could be known. One author, Baruch Halpern, actually says that the Jews invented the writing of history. Nobody else really ever did that. If the Bible opened to Luke Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. Now, I've talked about in the first week of this series how Luke says when he writes his book, he's making an orderly account so you will know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. That's why he does it. Uh, in Luke 3, Luke makes a statement about the beginning of John the baptizer's ministry. So this is what he says. Uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 1. I might butcher some names, so just go along with me. I'm a white boy. All right. Uh, Luke chapter 3, starting verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod the tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Eteria and Tetraconicus, and Lysinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, I probably butchered some names, but in that, how concerned is Luke about historical detail? Lots, right? Even words, I don't know what that word even means, right? Because he wants people to know this is not a myth. It's not a fable. It's, it's not a made-up kind of story. People who read a lot of ancient literature will tell you that how Luke writes, it is highly unusual. You don't get this kind of detail in stories about like Thor, Isis, or Hercules, or things like that. Because Luke wants people to know, regardless of what you think about his claims, this actually happened in real time and real space. So it raises the question then, well, is Luke actually accurate? 
And the answer is, is yes. There are so many details that have been confirmed by external sources about what the Bible says that they realize the people and the writers of the scriptures took history very seriously. There's great confidence for the things that they wrote. For example, for a very long time, people who were skeptical about Jesus cited that Luke 3 passage. And they looked at that, and they said, well, Luke mentions Licinius. Well, Licinius lived 50 years earlier. He had a different title and was a ruler in a different town called Chalcis. So skeptics said, Luke can't be trusted. He's just throwing names in there. That's until the 20th century when archaeologists caught up to the Bible and found an inscription that was written during the reign of Caesar Tiberius, which is 14 to 37 A.D., and refers to Licinius being the tetrarch of Abilene. It turns out there are two Licinius's. Who knew, Right? Uh, that two different moms would name their kids the same thing? What? You have any Michaels and Johns and Aarons that got around here? Where's that? Where's that? Oh, there's that John, our bass player. He took the cape. He was sitting over there earlier. But, you know, his son is named Aaron. We call him Little Aaron because I'm Big Aaron. All right? But I know I'm not very big, but I'm bigger than he is. So I'm, I'm Big Aaron. There, there's two Aarons. Who knew that people would do that? What? Name two kids the same thing? That's crazy. Luke got it exactly right. In Acts 18.12, Luke is also then the writer of Acts. We're told Paul was taken for the, from before the proconsul of Achaia named Gallio. Now, skeptics question that. Oh, there is no Gallio. And then this inscription is discovered in 1905 that reveals the proconsul of Achaia at that time was named Gallio. It's discovered in this place called Delphi. In Luke 19.22, Luke identifies a man named Erastus, who was one of Paul's helpers. It says that he was a city treasurer in a place called Corinth. A lot of scholars are skeptical. The Bible said, oh, all the early followers of Jesus, they're from the lower classes. There wouldn't be a city treasurer that, that did this. And so I want to show you a picture. This is a picture right here. This is a first century street that was unearthed in Corinth. And that stone right there was laid by Erastus. The third word in that, I know you can't read it, it's we're called Adele, and it's E-D-I-L and how we would do it today, but that's actually the name for someone who supervised the city's financial affairs. And so, in other words, in 1929, the stone that Erastus laid 1900 years earlier was still where he left it and revealed that he had the office that Luke said he actually did. In Acts 18.2, it says Emperor Claudius gave an order to dispel all the, to move all the Jews from Rome. Uh, now, outside of this, outside of the Bible, people said Claudius never did that. That never happened until they uncovered the writings of a Roman writer named Seutonius. And he writes, because the Jews of Rome caused continuous disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, that's another word for Christ, Claudius expelled them from the city. Over and over and over again, the Bible is proven to be true in what it says. And I know archaeology and historical research can't prove the Bible's claims about God are true. There are some questions about the oldest parts of the Old Testament that are still out there and trying to figure them out. But historian Rodney Stark said this, In general, the major result of the many unrelenting scholarly attacks on the historic reliability of the New Testament has been to frustrate the attackers because again and again the scripture has stood up to their challenges. I have this book by a guy named Bruce Feller. It's called Walking the Bible. He is not a Christian, but he decided to walk all the places of the Old Testament. In the book, he eventually gets to a place, and he asks this guy named Eleazar Oren, who at that time was a leading archaeologist in the world. He was at the University of Negev. And he asked how his research had affected the, his look at the Hebrew Scriptures. And, and Oren's response is when he started as a young scholar, he was, he was very skeptic. Uh, he was in his really rebellious phase. But the more he goes and he finds all these things out about the Hebrew Scriptures, it caused him to respect 
respect them more and more. So at the end of the conversation, Bruce Beller says, can you give the Old Testament a grade in terms of archaeological accuracy? And this is what he writes. For the first time on morning, he, that's Oren, grinned, A++. It's kind of cool. Objection number two. The Bible is full of contradictions that undermine its own authority. Ever heard that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you ever watch Bill Maher, Bill Maher loves to say that. He made this movie called Religulous, and it's all about that. I'll give you an example. In Matthew 8, a centurion comes to Jesus, and, he's, and he asks Jesus to heal his servant. In Luke chapter 7, there's the same story, but it's a group of men, of elders, that come and ask Jesus the same question. And so skeptics say, well, this proves the Bible can't be the word of God. It contradicts itself. And it's sad because we do today what the Bible just did there. We summarize stories in different ways. Matthew is very concerned about showing the authority of Jesus. Luke, on the other hand, is very concerned about showing the faith of the centurion. Like today, a reporter might say, the president announced today, when the words might have been written by a speechwriter and pronounced through a press secretary, and we still say, oh, the president said it, because we understand what that means. There's different ways of telling a story. And it doesn't mean the story didn't happen. In, in this culture, by these men going to Jesus in the name of this centurion, it's like the centurion going himself. When people read that in this culture, they would have thought, oh, yeah, the guy went himself because he sent those people. There's nothing wrong with how either Matthew or Luke write about the account. And beyond that, it's precisely that kind of detail that makes the gospel accounts very compelling. I mean, think about the resurrection. Matthew and Mark say there was one angel at the tomb. John and Luke say that there were two. Now, Matthew and Mark don't say there weren't two. What they do is they focus on the one who actually speaks. That's, that's the difference. Matthew says Peter denied Jesus before the rooster crowed once. Mark says the rooster crowed two times. And again, Matthew doesn't say the rooster didn't crow more. He essentially just looks at the denial and focuses on that. Everything really has an explanation when you don't come at it with a bias. But the most crucial detail in the gospel in terms of the resurrection is that it was first witnessed by women. Now, this is really important because in first century Israel, women were not allowed to give legal testimony. Talk about sexism. I saw someone do this. Doesn't matter you're a woman. You could literally kill somebody, have a hundred women see it, and no man get off scot-free. Not good, Right? All the women say, you're a terrible driver. Yeah, what does it matter? I'm a great driver because it's only women. Now, most scholars point out that if, if you were going to make something up, you would not put women in the account. That if you believe the resurrection itself did not happen, you have to believe at some point Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John got together to make something up. And if the Gospels really were the product of a group of guys making something up, then this is exactly the kind of thing you wouldn't put in there. You would airbrush all the details and you would get rid of the women. It would be some dude that saw Jesus rose from the grave first. John Hartberg pointed out that it's very clear that the writers of the Gospels and the early church were scrupulous about preserving the actual account of eyewitnesses. All the eyewitnesses agreed Jesus rose from the dead. Stephen Colbert did this great interview with a guy named Bart Ehrman. Uh, Bart Ehrman is a New Testament scholar. He is an agnostic. And he says to Stephen Colbert, you can't believe the Gospel writers when they don't agree on anything. And Stephen Colbert had this great line. He says, but aren't you burying the lead? Dead guy rises from the tomb. They all agree Jesus rose from the tomb. When every detail given about an, a person is identical, I, I, investigators get suspicious because they know someone got together to cook this thing up. All the eyewitnesses of the resurrection, they have attention to detail, but also different perspectives on what it looked like. And they all have the same lead, that Jesus rose from the grave. And that shows historicity. So objection number three, which is going to go into objection number four, is the original copies of the manuscripts of the Bible were written on perishable materials, so how can we trust the copies we have? 
This is kind of a question that came up in my gospel community this week. Do you know that the, the early church and the Hebrews both had people who their sole job was to copy down the scriptures so they can transmit them out correctly? You'd copy everything down word for word. If you messed up on a letter or a word at the very bottom of the page, you wouldn't just white it out and keep going. You'd throw it in the fire, you would burn it, and you would start over so that you would have perfect copies of everything. We trust our translations today because we have over 25,000 manuscript copies to check things against each other. And that is 25, 000, or 25 times more than any other ancient work of antiquity. The scriptures that we give you, like this ESV Bible that we hand out to you, that's not a translation of a translation of a translation of a translation. That is actually, going back to the earliest manuscripts, it's like Greek to English, boom, to you. It's not a translation of a translation. It is that, that, that's why we, we trust it. Nothing is even a close second to the scriptures. In 1979, there's a man named Gabriel Barquet, and he finds what one archaeological review called one of the ten biggest finds of the 20th century. He finds these two rolled pieces of silver that are about the size of cigarette butts. Now, because they're so old, it took them three years just to unroll them. It takes them another three years to treat them with chemicals just to see what was written on them. You know what the first word they saw was? Yahweh first word they saw and it came out of the book of numbers with the great blessing the lord bless you and keep you on documents that are 2600 years old plus and what's really interesting about this is a lot of skeptics say that wasn't even written that far ago this is they find these things that had these words written on that that were written 400 years before skeptics said they were ever written this is amazing The scriptures, when it comes to them, there's nothing else even close in support of the scriptures that we have. But how about this? There's an issue that is very true, that not everything in the Bible is written to everyone. I think it's written for everyone, but it's not written directly to everyone, which leads people to think that biblical authority is not real. And so sometimes people read the Bible. They misunderstand certain things that it says. And to illustrate that, I'm going to show you this video clip. Uh, This is from a TV show called The West Wing. Uh, There's a president. His name is Josiah Bartlett. And he's dressing down a conservative radio talk show host. And here's the clip. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions while I had you here. I'm interested in selling my youngest daughter into slavery as sanctioned in Exodus 21-7. She's a Georgetown sophomore, speaks fluent Italian, always cleared the table when it was her turn. What would a good price for her be? While thinking about that, can I ask another? My chief of staff, Leo McGarry, insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35.2 clearly says he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself, or is it okay to call the police? Here's one that's really important, because we've got a lot of sports fans in this town. Touching the skin of a dead pig makes one unclean. Leviticus 11.7. If they promise to wear gloves, can the Washington Redskins still play football? Can Notre Dame? Can West Point? Does the whole town really have to be together to stone my brother John for planting different crops side by side? Can I burn my mother in a small family gathering for wearing garments made from two different threads? Think about those questions, would you? If you, if you see this, this is, this is like millions of hits on YouTube. People repost this with, with things like uh, Bartlett Owens, Religious Nut, uh, West Wing Bible Lesson. And this is, again, why you should never let TV inform your theology, okay? Because all, all these things, in these prescriptions aren't exactly how the Old Testament talks about it, and it's in context of what's called the magisterial law, so it's all taken out of context, but it makes for great TV. 
Uh, N.T. Wright talks about how this is so common in our day. Stone adulterers, don't wear clothes of mixed fabric, which we are all doing, by the way, in this room right now. And so N.T. Wright talks about it like this. He says, the Bible itself offers the best, the best framework for understanding how we respond to the story. Think of the Bible as telling the big story of the human race in five acts. Act one is creation. That's Genesis 1 and 2. Everything is good. Act two is the fall. That's Genesis 3 through 11, where everything's messed up. Act three is God's working with the people of Israel. That's Genesis 12 all the way through the end of the Old Testament through Malachi. It says, Act four is the coming of Jesus, his physical presence on the earth. And Act five, Jesus goes, sends the spirit, and now there's the church. He says, we are living in Act 5. We're part of the big play, but we cannot pretend like we're living in Act 1, just like a character in Act 5 of Hamlet can't say a speech from the first act. In Act 1, there, there is no sin. Adam and Eve are naked. They have no shame. That's obviously not true today. We're not in Act 1. We, we wear clothes. We eat from all the trees. We're also not members of Israel living before Jesus came in Act 3. Therefore, we don't try to rebuild the temple, and we don't try to sacrifice animals. It's not arbitrary. We don't live even in Act 4 where Jesus comes, and he says some things like, don't go to the Gentiles, just go to the lost sheep of Israel. We go to all people because we're not living in Act 4. We're living in Act 5. We get to own the whole play. We get to own the whole story. We get to love everyone around us. Because in, in understanding this, we live in Act 5. This is exactly what the New Testament writers were doing when they wrote the New Testament. No apostle set aside the Old Testament or parts of it arbitrarily. They're living in the understanding of the fulfillment of the entire story of how God reveals himself in creation and the fall and the people of Israel and the person of Jesus and the resurrection. It all fits together. Last week, we talked about science in the Bible. I was on video. I was much bigger than I am today. I guess I could be big Aaron last week. But uh, in our day, science has enormous authority, and science loves this word called literally. Like, we literally this. Now, but there's a difference between literally and wooden literalism. Wooden literalism is something that says, if you say, I'm so hungry, I'm going to eat a horse, you would then go out and eat a horse. Right? But literally, when we understand literally, it understands things that are going on around a text. It's not thoughtless. It's not careless. It's not anti-intellectual. The Bible has poetry and narrative and parables and letters and proverbs and laws. And to read it literally means you find out what the author intended his audience to understand. If you missed last week's message, I would encourage you to listen to it. But this takes us to objection number four, which is the Bible supports regressive practices like violence and slavery. Have you ever heard that? No? Okay. I have, so I'm going to talk about it. Okay. John Ortberg wrote this. He says, I think very often what falsely appears as problems to people really come from a failure to understand the kind of book it is and what it means to begin to read it in its historical and cultural context. Most people today are familiar with this thing from the Old Testament, Exodus 21, that says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. People today say, that is such a brutal and bloody way to live. The Bible must be pro-violence. And it's not. What you have to understand is at that time, there's no squad cars and no police departments and no law enforcement. And if you hurt me, I can do whatever I want to hurt you back as much as I want. And in that world, uh, Exodus 21 is laying the foundation for this thing called proportional justice. Unlimited vengeance is not allowed. Someone knocks your tooth out. You don't get to kill them. Someone cuts you off on the roundabout. You don't get to go blow up their car. Right? It's, it, it's a huge step forward in crime and punishment. It's what N.T. Wright says, you know, this is during the third act. Go to the act four and Jesus shows up, Matthew 5, 38 to 48. Jesus quotes the eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth thing. And he says, now what I want you to do is turn the other cheek and love your enemies. And Jesus is not saying Moses got it wrong at all. Jesus is a good rabbi. 
He's saying the ultimate value in what Moses is moving you towards, one step at a time, is the understanding of love and grace and God's rescue of us. God starts with people where they are, and he is moving them one step at a time. So come to something like slavery. You know, the Bartlett clip of West Wing kind of talked about that. In the early 1800s, people in the South would say, the Bible says slaves obey your master, so it supports slavery. I just read a whole book on this. You know, at the very same time, People who were opposed to slavery used the scriptures as well. No, God says slavery is wrong. We need to bring about the abolition of slavery. In America, slavery is all based upon racism. Even people who defended slavery and thought they were biblical in doing it, they never said, oh, let's make white people slaves. They never said something like that. You understand, slavery in the ancient world, though, it wasn't racially targeted. Everywhere in the world there was slavery. Every culture in the world at that time had slavery. There, there was no group of people, no pagans, no atheists, no progressives. Nobody was saying, we had no slaves, let's get rid of slavery. It was woven into the economic and social fabric of the ancient world very deeply. But then here comes the God of Israel and his law and his people. And he says slavery is to be limited and it never condones it. It's moving people away from it. And God even says after six years, everybody goes free. Everybody goes free. The power of master is limited. Punishments are limited. And when a slave goes free, he gets gifts. Why? Because he's going to start a life. And so you have to give him gifts. The Old Testament is limiting some, subverting the practice of slavery. And over time, as the church eventually looked at how God made all people in his image, how Jesus came and died for all people, how Paul says in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. This leads to, uh, leads to a movement where the church, based upon the scriptures, brings about the abolition of slavery in the world. This is what the scriptures do. Objection number five, and this is the only real objection I will give you and let you live with, okay? Objection number five, if I start taking the Bible seriously, it might interfere with my plans for my life. And that's really what it comes down to. The reason why we don't want the scriptures to be true is because if you believe it, it's going to interfere with your plans for your life. It's going to call you to surrender yourself to Jesus and to love him and love others like he calls us to live. Talking with this lady in first service, she's got these crazy neighbors that moved in. She's like, I hate my neighbors. And I'm like, yeah, but the Bible is true, and Jesus loves you and saved you. you got to love them, too. I don't want to love them. I'm like, all right, I'm just saying, were you here this morning? Right, you know. <laughs> and if you're like, oh, if I believe the Bible's going to change, I, I can't help you with that objection. I can't. Uh, Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is the amazing thing about the Bible. It has this power to it. So many people come and they think, I'm going to judge the Bible. And they realize in the end that the Bible starts reading them and weighing them. And that's why they lash out so hard against it. Because the Bible isn't weird or awkward. We just think it is because we live now and we don't think that we're weird. But we are really weird. If you fast forward 2,000 years and people come and look at us and our culture and they watch reruns of the shows that we watch or, or YouTube videos of, of like treadmill dancers and skiing squirrels or the, listen to the music of someone named Lady Gaga, you're not going to think that they're gonna like, oh, those people are totally normal. No, they're going to think we're weirdos, total weirdos. you got to ask yourself, what is the book, the source, the authority, the idea that you want to base your one and only life on? What do you want it to be? Will it hold up in 2,000 years or 2 million years? As the Bible changed the world, and it didn't do it by accident. It was written by real people in a real world, in real historical places, in real historical times. 
And there's never been a book like it. And I would encourage you to read Ten Keller's book, chapter 7, this week. goes along with this. But when you read the scriptures, read it with a humble heart. Then believe that God can meet you. Ask him to meet you when you read it. Because I believe he will. Because his word is true. And we can trust the scriptures. And all the scriptures are the story about God rescuing and saving us. The point is not for me this morning to get you to believe all the archaeological evidence for the scriptures. The point of me this morning is to help you know you can trust it. Because what does it talk about? It talks about God's rescue of us. Because we are the ones who ran away. And we can trust it because it's true that God has stepped into little, literal, physical history to rescue us in a literal, physical way. Our hearts, our souls, our lives, ourselves. When we talk about communion, this is not a metaphysical thing. This is Jesus actually came and he died for us because of all that separated us from God. God said, you sin, you die. And it's so true. We run away, we separate ourselves from him. And so Jesus comes to die in our place to take away all that separates us from God so that we can be restored to him. And this is why we talk about communion every week. You take that cracker and you break it like Christ's body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine and the grape juice reminds us of his literal blood and body that was broken and his blood that was shed for us in real time because God stepped into time to rescue us. And we can trust the things that he says. The band's going to come up. As they do, I'm going to invite you guys to take communion. There's going to be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you need prayer, if you've been in a place today where you've been like, I I can never trust the Bible, and maybe you're starting to rethink that just a little bit, and you want to talk to somebody about that a little bit, they'd love to talk and pray with you about that. I mean, if you're in a place where where you've always questioned who Jesus is and and is it really true or what he's done, there's a lot more evidence. Guys, I, I gave you... 35 minutes. Um, I am long-winded today, maybe 40. Okay, But I'll give you 35 minutes of it. There, there are stacks and stacks of books all about the historicity of what Jesus came to do and the resurrection and all this stuff. But again, the point isn't for us to just know all the arguments and know all the historical facts about it. The point is for us to know Jesus. The point is for us to live a life that trusts who he is and what he has done to rescue and save us. And so if you, if you like things I'll talk about this morning, great, great. Hopefully that will take you to objection five, to the place where you actually let it begin to change who you are, where we live differently, because we're actually beginning to live in a relationship with the great God who has come to rescue and save us. And so that's what I would encourage you today. If, you, if these things hit home with you, great, great. Begin to live in a restorative relationship with the God who came to rescue and save you, because that's what it's all about. There's offering boxes next to every single door we give because God gave so much to us, giving us part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. It's a response to what God has done. There's food outside. I know Pete Newman brought a million donuts for service. There's probably still some left. Uh, grab a donut. Don't overstuff yourself because you're going to go out to pumpkin killing at 1.30. At least you better, or we will hunt you down with our cannons. No. Uh, <laughs> Uh, grab something to eat, meet some other people, take some of the sermon note questions this week, and maybe, maybe talk about some of the questions you've had, maybe about the scriptures, the reliability of the Bible, or some of the objections you have heard. And Because there will be questions in your life you will come across that won't always necessarily be answered. But I will guarantee you this. There is an answer. There is an answer. But even the answer to those questions aren't really the point. Because the true answer is the questioning and the questing of our hearts and our lives to be restored to relationship with our great and good God. And that, and that is why Christ came. Not to answer all of our questions, but to restore us to relationship. 
And so that's what I would encourage you guys to live out today. Our God is great and good. Uh, Let's pray. Father, this morning, I do ask that you would remind us of the historicity of who you are and the goodness of who you are and the grace that you have stepped into history. Father, that, that you are a God who will even answer many of our questions, even though you don't have to, but you do because you love us. But I ask today that you wouldn't make our own intellect the center of who we become. But we would be a people who trust you and live in a relationship with you. And that makes us who we are. That you have restored our hearts and our lives. That you have brought us from death into life. That you have given to us restorative grace. And that we would trust you for that restorative grace. Father, thank you that the things that you have said and the things that you have done are real and true. But teach us more and more every day to trust you in how we live. That the scriptures wouldn't just help us to answer our intellectual arguments, but the scriptures would move and change us to begin to be the people you are calling us to be. As Ephesians 5 says, as imitators of you as dearly loved children, because that's what we are. We are your kids, and you call us in faith to be your representatives to this world. So teach us to live out with great hope in who you are and the things that you have done (laughs) so that all that we do would honor who you are. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.